By the time I was four or five, we'd moved from the rental farmhouse surrounded by soybean and cornfields to Douglas County's metropolis, Tuscola, Illinois. Tuscola sits at the juncture of U.S. Highways 36 and 45, with the Illinois Central Rail tracks bordering on the west and the central and eastern Illinois tracks slicing through the middle of town. This was decades before the interstate highway system, or Walmart, or big box stores. Tuscola, at 3,000 folks or so then, and not much bigger now, was the largest town between Champaign, home of the University of Illinois, 22 miles to the north, and Mattoon, whose high school teams were known as the Green Waves, alike 20 or so miles to the south, with Indianapolis a couple of hours east, Decatur an hour west, and Chicago two and a half hours to the north on two-lane highways. We never went to Indy, nor to Chicago. They were too big and too foreign. A big trip was to Decatur, or Champaign, or Mattoon. Although for my sixth birthday, we drove the four hours to St. Louis to see the zoo. Other than that trip, I would never set foot in a town larger than Champaign, until, as a high school junior, when I went to the Chicago Military Entrance Processing Center to take a physical examination for entrance to the United States Merchant Marine Academy. Poor vision meant an end to that dream. As a market town, the farmers brought their grain to the elevators lining the right-of-way next to the tracks, bought farm supplies at the feed store, lumber, fencing, and nails at one of the two lumber yards, bib overalls at Cohen's, thread and needles at the Ben Franklin's or Kresge's, and maybe an ice cream at Flesser's Candy Kitchen, owned by the old Greek guy, Gus, all on brick-paved Sales Street, all bustling on Saturday afternoons. We'd moved to a little two-room house on the east end, the poor end of town. Dad, a carpenter then, added two rooms to the little house, which, unlike the other houses in the neighborhood, featured a two-car detached garage in the back of the house, near the coal-clinker-covered alley. A roof-covered porch replacing the stoop and concrete sidewalk were to come later. The little house was tiny at not much more than six or eight hundred square feet. But unlike the drafty, weather-beaten old farmhouse, it was snug and warm in the winter. A sunny, late August day a year or so after we moved to town, I started grade school at the ripe old age of five. Kindergartens or preschool were unheard of in rural and small-town America then. Since I would turn six in September, it was time I start school. The first grade was in a newly built addition to the high school. The school, with playground and baseball field, took up an entire city block near the center of town, a five-block walk from the little brown house. Rain, snow, or shine, I walked to school walked home for lunch, and back to school. I envied the farm kids. They got to eat lunch at school, either bringing their lunch or eating in the cafeteria, a far more interesting and mysterious process than walking home to eat. To encourage nutrition and dairy farmers' production, we got a mid-morning snack of a half pint of milk. Regular milk costs two cents a carton, a dime a week. Chocolate milk was available, too, but for whatever reason, cost probably, I seldom got it. Few kids did. 
We all had to bring a throw rug from home, which we'd put on the floor to curl up on at nap time. I hated nap time. It interfered with reading, not to mention recess. I loved school. It was an escape for me. I loved reading. I loved new books and venturing from home. Even more, I loved Mrs. Michaels. Mrs. Michaels was tall, at least to my first grade size self, blonde, and beautiful. As an early reader and quick study, I earned her praise and ne'er a scolding. Mrs. Michaels' allure was only enhanced by the fact that she was married. Her husband, the high school principal, occasionally stopped by our classroom. His towering figure, always dressed in a white shirt, tie, and dark trousers, intimidating. Neither my father, nor my uncles, nor my grandfathers ever wore a white shirt and tie, unless it was to a funeral. They were invariably dressed in workman's clothes. So a white shirt, tie, and dark trousers, even without a suit jacket, immediately denoted someone of authority, wealth, and power. We didn't have a television set until my second or third grade year, although my paternal grandparents, who lived a block to the west, did. We'd watch TV there on a Saturday or Sunday evening. My two-year younger brother and I would beg to stay another half hour to watch Father Knows Best, to which my dad invariably replied, Father Knows Best, we're going home, it's time for bed. With no television set, our exposure to the outside world was limited to visiting relatives. But once I entered school, a new world opened, the world of reading. I devoured books. I loved to read. The escape offered by the written word and the praise from the gorgeous blonde who delighted in my skill at reading provided an irresistible allure. Once I started school, I never looked back. Even as a child, I knew escape from that little brown house, escape from that small town, escape from working class, escape into the world of books and words and white shirts was my goal. Escape from non-entity to authority. Approval from tall, attractive blondes, ranked high on the scale of needs. It wasn't until a few years later that rebellion set in. A few years later, when the dislike of bureaucracy, rigid rules, and authoritarian figures became a fixture of my life. When I began to master the role of ringleader of the rebellion, the ability to show defiance right up to the edge of the precipice, then deftly stepped back before plunging into the disciplinary process. Ah, but in first grade, it was all sweetness and light. The love of my young life was there to inspire and guide me. It was only later that I would learn that not all those in position of power, like the smart-mouthed, quick-learning kid from the wrong end of town, with a tendency to push against the rules. I left that town with a chip on my shoulder. Sometimes that chip has helped me by driving me to succeed when others thought I couldn't. More often, it has impeded me by keeping the ember of resentment of class distinction smoldering in my soul. I once told my mother, probably when I was in high school, that I wanted to come back driving a Jaguar and rich enough to buy any house in town. Well, I've been back. Been back to accept the key to the city from the mayor. It sits on my credenza in my office now, along with that proclamation. 
I've been back, not driving a Jaguar, but in a Cadillac and a Mercedes and a Corvette, wearing a Rolex. I've been back driving a beat-up old Ford. I've been back wearing combat boots. I've been back chauffeured by a driver and escorted by a convoy. I've slipped back into town in the dark of the night, broken cold. I've swooped in to address a high school assembly on Veterans Day. I've had glowing editorials written about me in the town's weekly newspaper. I've been ignored by all except the town cop, who pulled me over for the broken exhaust pipe, polluting the quiet streets with its raucous tones. The exhaust pipe I couldn't afford to fix. Does any of it matter? I won't be buried there. Few, if any, other than my cousins, remember me there. The once bustling downtown, mostly shuttered now. Even the discount outlet mall next to the interstate that fueled the city's coffers for decades with its sales tax revenue now has escaping storefronts and abandoned parking lots. The feed stores closed and the cattle long gone. The lumberyards out of business. My grade school closed and torn down decades ago. The cornfields and soybean fields still stand green, mimicking the Mattoon High School Green Wave school mascot. The residents no longer work there. Now they commute to Champaign-Urbana to work at the university or at car dealers or at malls. The trains still whistle through, but the cars no longer trundle down U.S. 45 nor slow through town on U.S. 36. They seldom stop now at the Interstate 57 exit. I only go back for funerals now, but when I do, I still stop in Lesser's Candy Kitchen for lunch and chocolate to take home. Gus, long dead, now run by his granddaughter, and the lone beacon of retail prosperity on the once bustling sales street. As for Mrs. Michaels, still lovely, still alive, if only in a fading memory.